Automated Podcast. Welcome to Automated. I'm your host, Mark Verbenkov, and in this weekly podcast, we will be exploring the impact of emerging technology on jobs, society, as well as us, with business and technology leaders, researchers, and independent professionals across the world. So one of the avenues that this podcast has kind of organically started to explore are really the different emerging industries that we are seeing more and more of today. I think the reason for this is that not only will they lead to substantial job growth over time, but they may actually be a space for the industries that are seeing their jobs being replaced by automation technologies today. So on that note, in today's episode, we revisit the new space economy, which of course has been getting a lot of media attention in the last few years due to its growth, charismatic leaders, and of course the interest in future projects and potential subsequent both social but also economic impacts. However, one of the growing challenges for the industry is of course tracking both the satellites and the debris that is already out in space in order to avoid the number of collisions that are possible. And this gets more problematic every single year as more satellites enter the Earth's orbit. So to explain how this will play out, the industry, potential job impact, and of course the future vision is Araz Fazy. He's the co-founder and CTO of Kahan Space. So Araz is a engineer and data scientist by training with a master's in information systems and has been part of two successful startups besides Kahan Space. He joined Duetto, a B2B software as a service startup as an early employee and left to co-found Cypher, a cybersecurity startup. He has over 10 years of experience in technology and analytics, working for startups as well as Fortune 500 companies. And I was lucky enough to talk to him about this exciting new industry on today's episode. Great, Araz. Thank you very much for coming on to the Automated Podcast. It's great to have you here to speak about the new space economy, the work that you guys are doing. Thanks for coming on today. Mark, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm looking forward uh, to the conversation, to some of the insights that you can bring. One of the ways that I like to start with all my guests, though, is to get a little bit more of a personal interest. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about space. We'll be talking about the new space economy. Everybody's always looking to Elon Musk. Uh, SpaceX, uh, even uh, Jeff Bezos and the Blue Origin work that they're doing. Um, but what got you initially interested in space, in having a startup, uh, working in the things that you do? That's a great question. So um, every kid, most kids, I should say every kid, most kids are interested in space when they grow up. And I just happened to be interested in uh, astronomy and uh, amateur astronomy when I was in high school. We did some work with friends. We had a small group of, you know, amateur astronomy that we, you know, used to just go out and, and uh, watch events, stuff like that. But I wasn't actually, I didn't get into space until this, until we started this company. Mm. Um, my background, I'm a technologist. My background is in uh, product development and cloud computing analytics. I've been programming since I was a kid. So uh, my expertise over time has developed to be leveraging the, the, the best and the greatest uh, parts, you know, uh, offerings of cloud computing and, and technology partner with somebody within the industry with deep industry expertise and, and try to find and solve a mm-hmm. problem for that industry. And, um, the story goes back about two years ago when, uh, my, my, my very close friend of mine, my co-founder now, Siamak, um, we were talking and, and he was, you know, kind of 
telling me, complaining that, hey, I've been hired for the third time by the third company to build exact same capability for them. Mm. And and we kind of paused and we said, well, maybe there's an opportunity here to uh, contribute to the industry. And his background is in aerospace. He has a PhD in aerospace engineering with uh, concentration and focus on precise orbit determination and estimation. He's an astrodynamicist. He has led and supported various NASA, JPL, and commercial missions. So he's the guy with deep industry expertise. And mm-hmm. and, and and so we sat down. We spent about almost nine months toying with different ideas of how how our expertise together can help this industry. And obviously, it was kind of a throwback to to my interests from from you know when I was younger. Um, and, and yeah, so that's that's how we got into uh, that's how I got into uh, this industry um, today. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm, I mean, why don't we just jump right into the actual industry itself? Because I think this is something that's always uh, very interesting for people to hear. Also, maybe a little bit beyond the kind of typical, as I mentioned, you know, SpaceX, Blue Origin, etc. So the Mars mission is kind of one of the the main things that gets, I think, a lot of the hype cycle, right? Most of the media attention. Uh, most people that aren't really paying attention to the space economy focus on things like that, the kind of bigger news. But I think as you're more entrenched in the industry, maybe could you touch on some of the things that are exciting you for the next maybe five, ten years that maybe some of us haven't heard of before? Yeah, so, um, you know, Mars Project, or, or you know, it's fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of technologies are com- are going to come out of uh, of of all these missions that are we're planning on to go to Mars and beyond. But to take a step back and focus on what is important to us today, uh, I want to I want to talk about Earth orbit. Most people, when they talk about Earth orbit or space in general, they believe that it's an unlimited kind of resource that we have. But the reality is that the usable Earth orbit or orbital environment is is couple hundred kilometers above Earth. Obviously, we have mm-hmm. Geosatcom, mm-hmm. Geosat, uh, or geostationary satellites that are further out. But most of the technologies that we rely on are much closer to Earth, and it's a very finite, it's a very limited amount of kind of space around, so orbit around Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we have satellites that are uh, supporting trillion-dollar industries here on, on Earth. So think about global supply chain, think about GPS, think about communication, entertainment, agriculture, defense. Our, our everyday life, our modern life, is dependent on space, basically continuously, 24-7, mm-hmm. right? And there are a couple of problems that, that we're facing today, and these problems are going to kind of grow as, uh, you know, as we launch more satellites into space, that are threatening the sustainability in Earth orbit, which is indirectly is threatening the way we, lo- we live our lives today, right, right? Right, And that is what's exciting the most today because it is a problem that exists. It is a problem that is directly affecting our lives today. And we're focused on, on, on addressing the issues in, in Earth, Earth orbit or orbital environment. Um, just to put it in perspective, it's in the first six, seven decades of uh, space age, right? Uh, old space age since 1960s uh, until recently, we had launched about 8,000 satellites, give or take. Mm-hmm, 2,000 mm-hmm. of which are still operational. 6,000 have either kind of decommissioned still in orbit or, or they're, you know, kind of turned to debris or they've come down to Earth or, or burnt in the atmosphere. Just in like 2020 to 2021 timeframe, SpaceX alone has launched 1,400 satellites, right? right. So they've become the largest satellite operator in the world within a year, year and a half. Now, 
If you look at the forecast, we're planning on launching somewhere between 40 to 60,000 satellites in the next decade. You have mega constellations. If you just look at the, the planned ones, uh, Amazon Kuiper, you have OneWeb, you have the, the China's mega constellation that was just announced. You have the SpaceX's Starlink. And we're, the, the space around Earth is getting congested as we, you know, as we launch more satellites. Yep. Yep. So if you stop launching a single satellite today, uh, we would still be in trouble because you know, Earth orbit has a carrying capacity. And, and per recent estimates, 95% of that is already taken by space debris or space junk. Okay. So it, it okay. just, just, you know, that is the problem that we're really excited about. Uh, and we're trying to you know, bring the technology that will help guarantee that we'll have a sustainable orbital environment around Earth uh, right. for the next generations to come. Right. So, um, so it sounds like there's a couple different challenges then for this entire new space economy, right? You, you touched on the kind of limited carrying capacity, the limited space in space, the, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe also you can touch a little bit further on the space debris, because I think this is a, this is something that doesn't really get that much attention. I don't think uh, I've read a couple uh, articles um, back when I had Asgard space on, um, mm-hmm. oh, you know, our mutual contact. And there was, uh, I think some crazy number, like several million pieces of space debris from like a single, I think it was like a single paint spec, right? All the way to one of these larger decommissioned satellites that are still just kind of floating around, uh, not really doing anything other than taking up space and potentially causing some kind of, uh, collisions. Um, could you touch on that a little bit more? Cause I think it's, it's quite interesting, especially as you've kind of painted this vision of, you know, kind of an exponential growth of satellites and other kind of, um, uh, technologies that will be taking up our, our limited space. Yeah. So, um, how do we know space orbital debris exists? Uh, so there's a U.S. started something called Space Surveillance Network back in the day. And, uh, it, 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 today it's, uh, it's, it's a combination of Earth radars and telescopes and on orbit, uh, assets and, you know, laser, uh, laser ranging tools. The, the, the initial purpose of that, that, um, this, this network was to detect, uh, ballistic missiles. But as a byproduct mm-hmm. of that, we started seeing objects in orbit. And, and then what has, the, the way it's evolved and it's, it's, it's continues to evolve, um, it is a scanning, uh, Earth orbit for all the pieces that it can see. So right now we can see, uh, using space SSM, we can see objects that are larger than 10 centimeters in diameter. So mm-hmm. U.S. Space Force, uh, used to be U.S. Air Force, now U.S. Space Force, um, catalogs, uh, somewhere between 20 to 30, 20 to 30,000 objects that, that, that we can see. So these are objects that they can be nat, they can be, they could be natural, um, debris, or they could be man-made debris that, as you said, it can be just, you know, a piece of paint that came off of a launch vehicle, or it can be a second stage that we left in orbit, or a decommissioned satellite. Now, it's estimated that there are about a million pieces of debris in Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the estimate, because, you know, we can't see anything smaller right. than 10 centimeters right. diameter. Now, a new uh, radar uh, came online, I believe, last year, called Space Fence, that is operated by SSN, that is capable of seeing much smaller objects, about three centimeters or large. It's expected that once this, this radar's data is, is, is ingested into the catalog, we'll be able to see over a hundred thousand objects. So the reality is the more we look, the more we find. Yeah. Now, so these objects are flying at 20,000 miles an hour. Yeah. That's about 10 to 17 times the speed of a bullet. Now at that speed, if a fragment size of a penny, if it hits a satellite, it will destroy it into pieces. 
And when that happens, and if that happens, mm-hmm. it doesn't just end that particular mission. The debris from that, that, that collision that can be in thousands of, you know, pieces will stay in orbit for tens or hundreds of years. And each one of those become another piece of debris that, that would yeah. threaten assets. Yeah. So, uh, it's not, you know, a gravity movie came out, right? So that is actually based on true science. Uh, Kessler, uh, uh, Kessler syndrome is, uh, was, was, uh, introduced by, by Kessler in the 1970s. Uh, and it's a chain reaction. So if you have one c- collision, the pieces, the debris from that hits other assets, destroys mm-hmm. those, and it causes a chain reaction that will, uh, that can basically make an entire orbit unusable for generations. Yeah. So it is an extremely difficult problem. And again, as I mentioned, even if we stop launching a single satellite today, we still have to deal with this growing pain of, hey, you know, we have all these uh, collisions that we have to avoid. And it happens on a daily basis, satellite operators perform maneuvers to, to, to avoid collisions with other operational satellites or orbital debris on an, on an ongoing basis. Yeah. When you have an, uh, an, an asset that you can maneuver, it's, it's, it's easier because you don't even maneuver it out of the way. But when you have two objects that are not maneuverable and then they're at risk of colliding, there's nothing you can do. And that's the worst case scenario, which we had one of them a couple of months ago and two uh, giant pieces of debris were, were very, got very close together. So when we talk about things like the, the latest um, Chinese uh, uh, rocket body that, that was left in orbit that came down a few days ago, um, that's a big problem because you have 20 plus tons of material. And if that right. 20 right. ton you know, object collides with another object, it will create so many pieces of debris that can, that can, you know, create a, a cascading effect, uh, for, for other, um, operators. And, and it's not about just, uh, and it's not just about the satellites that are currently in orbit. If you want to, if you, if you try to launch anything into space, you got to yeah. go through the, the lower earth orbit. So one of the products that, for example, we have is called launch conjunction assessment. When you're launching a new, uh, launch vehicle, you want to make sure that you know, from first stage, second stage, payload, all, all of the other components are not going to collide with anything. Right. And it wasn't in use that, you know, in April, uh, when the, um, when the Dragon was docking with ISS, they had a, they had a, uh, turned out to be a false alarm, which is, again, underscores the story, but they had to get into back, back, get back into their, uh, suits because they thought that they, there was a close approach with a piece of debris. So right. it's threatening. Not not just satellites, but but human life, and also any kind of mission, whether it's Earth uh, bound or, Mount, or 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 Moon or Mars or beyond, you have to go through this cloud of debris to get out. And um, if I can tie this back to what you were saying at the start, where you know our on Earth civilization is going to become more and more dependent on these spacefaring systems and assets, as you were mentioning, this risk. Uh, grows considerably, or I guess you could say the impact of this risk grows considerably. Um, yeah. Maybe also then tying it into uh, Kahan Space, where uh, where we have all of these new kinds of satellites coming out, right? Starlink and the other ones that you mentioned. Um, what is going to happen if they're not able to be properly tracked, right? Uh, or is is there a system out there now that can properly track these things, track the debris, and uh, help them avoid the collisions? Great question. So tracking is one part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the great thing about operating satellites is that, especially the, the newer ones that are being launched, they, they all come with, you know, GPS on board and they're, you know, they're, they're at least, you know, one to three uh, yeah. units large. So current technologies can, can very well track these objects. So 
tracking operational and, and and I guess any any kind of large satellite is not a big problem because we can already we can already track those pretty well. So the problem mostly is to the ability to track items that that we can't track them precisely today. So for example, mm. so if you have a piece of paint that came off of a satellite or, or, or a launch vehicle. These are called hammers, a high area to mass ratio. These are, you can imagine, very light, but 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 large area, mm-hmm. but, but large kind of, uh, in terms of area, it's pretty big. What is what is wrong with that? Because solar radiation at, at, at lack of gravity or low gravity has actually pretty significant effect on, effect on, on move. So solar radiation or solar rays can actually push an, an object like that. So, right. And, and when you're looking from, from, from ground, you only see like a, you know, the, the radar return that you get tells you there's an object approximately this, this large. But when you have, you have, uh, items like that, then, then, then your uncertainty is pretty high hmm. to know where they exactly are and where they're going. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very complex problem to, to track these objects. And especially the smaller ones, if you have smaller objects, it's just very hard to detect them and, and it's very hard to track them. Uh, right, so because right. you get the snapshot of, okay, so I saw an object going, you know, here at the speed or that velocity. And then based on that, you kind of try to, uh, identify those. So, so identifying, I guess, finding and identifying and cataloging debris is a big problem. So we just need to make sure that they are, they are set at a minimum. So that's, that's one, that's one big problem. What we are trying to do is that, and so, the, so that's one part of the problem. So knowing where, where, Operation satellites are knowing where mm-hmm. debris is. Those are those are two parts of the solution. The third one is that how do we avoid these uh, catastrophic collisions? Now, if satellite operators, you know, say you have a satellite that is uh, that 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 is doing Earth observation, you're up there to perform your mission, which is Earth observation. You're not there to necessarily, you know, avoid collisions. It mm-hmm. is a it is a it, it is a part of the job that you have to do, but it is not necessarily what you're there to do. And um, right now, in certain orbital regimes, satellite operators are getting hundreds of uh, potential uh, what's called conjunction messages or collision notifications every week from your space force. Okay. Okay. And uh, in, as we inc- as the number of objects and, and satellites are increased, you can assume that how 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 quickly that's going to grow, how quickly these these scenarios are going to increase. Now. This process that is, is used today is, has a couple of issues. So one is not scalable. So you have people usually just looking at these emails and mm-hmm. doing some analysis in house. And then, um, you know, then, then they bring people together. They decide whether or not they need to perform a maneuver. They design a maneuver. They, they screen it to make sure that once they perform that maneuver, it won't result in another accident. And then they finally either do, uh, do a maneuver or not. It's time consuming. It's not scalable. Human is in critical path of the response, so there are delays in, introduced, and there's human errors introduced. We've had right. human errors in the past that almost resulted in collisions. So what we believe needs to be done is that we believe that there needs to be, we need to, we need better automation and autonomy in avoiding certain collisions. Mm-hmm. And it's just because it's not humanly possible to have a constellation of thousands or, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands of satellites and do this in a manual, manual, manual fashion. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of smaller operators that are launching satellites. It can be a student group. It can be a startup to launch a satellite. And right. we can't expect every satellite operator to kind of develop these autonomies and, and these automations to, to avoid collisions. So what we are building, uh, we're building an autonomous satellite collision avoidance system 
that um, that what it does is it tracks where you're going, tracks all the upcoming conjunctions. We do we perform trending and analysis in the back end. We, may, we have we, when you need to know about an mm-hmm. event, we send you a notification. We say, hey, we received 150 notifications today. There's this one that you need to look at. Here's a Slack message. Mm-hmm. We send it to Slack or Microsoft Teams or you know Mattermost. Uh, and then, um, and then if there is, if we believe that there's a need for, uh, for a maneuver, for avoidance maneuver, we prepare that based on all the constraints that satellite operator has and we provide it to them. All they need to do is just upload it to their satellite, review it, upload their satellite and be done. So that's, that's, you know, that's the technology part that we're developing to, um, to help reduce the risk of collisions uh, in space. Right. Yeah, um, th- it's it still surprises me that the main way that collisions are stopped today is through emails. To to me, when I first heard that with uh, with the previous guest, it still blew my it completely blew my mind because when you think of space, when you think of the new space economy, you think you know some of the most high tech equipment and technology in and outside of our world. Um, so it, it's it's really interesting that uh, emails are still kind of the primary way. That this is happening, and I, I guess from from my understanding, your your platform, your system is going to be a, a new layer of of automation that enables the not only the efficiency of these collision avoidances, but also the um, how should I say the scaled up version of uh, human notification systems, uh, especially as you know if we're going to have some tens of thousands of satellites in the next couple of years. That would mean, I would assume, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of individual people to do that tracking, to do the notifying, uh, to send those emails and to stop those collisions. So it, it sounds really interesting that this automation layer would be able to solve many of these problems that are going to come up. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. And one thing I would add is that, you know, um, do you want to compare, you know, these are terminology in the space industry, old space versus new space. Old mm-hmm. space, up until recently, you had to be a, government agency or a billion dollar company, uh, you know, a, a corporate to be able to yeah. develop and uh, design a mission, develop your satellite, launch it, run it and, and all of that. But today um, you can be a small company or a you know, student group coming out of, you know, uh, university, have a sensor. Then you basically go to a company such as say Tyvek or Blue Canyon Technology. They will build your satellite for you. You may not even see it. They will send it to a ride share, for example, to Nanorex. They will put on Nanorex. Mm-hmm. It will go on a Falcon 9 ride share. It will get to orbit sub 1 million. Then you will work with someone like Azure or uh, AWS. They have ground stations integrated with their systems. You will get your data, analyze it on the cloud, and, and all of that. But you still, when it comes to risk uh, or, or a space like safety capabilities, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you have to build them in-house. And that is the And that is why we started this company, because... We believe that this, this whole category of space flight safety uh, as a software hasn't been defined. You mm. still have to build tools to figure out where you are, orbit determination tools. You still have to build automation and tools to avoid collisions. You still have to, you know, build technology to, you know, task, figure out what is the most optimal uh, way for you to t- task your missions. And that's what we're, that's what we're addressing. We're, we're, so our solution is not just satellite collision avoidance. We are building yeah. a space flight safety uh, software for satellite operators, a turnkey solution right, that is built right. for interoperability. And can can you maybe touch on the technology itself a little bit more? Because I think it would be interesting for a number of the listeners. I, I would assume that uh, algorithms and some form of AI would be uh, central to this platform, the, to the system that you're building. Yeah, sure. Um, 
this is a very uh, kind of analytical problem. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have some observations. We, so there are ground radars, say there are ground radars, uh, that, that detect our orbital debris and you have a satellite and that has, let's say, let's assume that has a GPS on board. So we get data from ground radars or access to, to, to enhance catalog through APIs. And then we get tracking data from or, or location data from the GPS. We take that data and we put it through a process called orbit determination basically figures out where uh, the object is. And at that point, we can kind of intersect it with the entire uh, catalog of debris and the way they're moving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so a part of this is already done through CSPOC or the um, 18 Space Control Squadron, which is in, which is the, uh, operating the Space Surveillance Network. Uh, a lot of times we just get a notification from the 18 Space uh, on behalf of our, uh, our customers saying, hey, We've, we're forecasting a or predicting a what's called a conjunctional close approach six days from now at this time between these two satellites, and then we can mm-hmm. and then that that solution gets updated as 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 it gets closer uh, and we have more accurate data on tracking that 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 gets that that gets updated. So we ingest all of that, we do tracking, we analyze it, and if you have more accurate data on either what's called primary. We ingest that, uh, we, 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 we predict where the object is going and we run our collision avoidance algorithms. Mm-hmm. And, that, and we provide our customer with all the information they need. So we show them visually how it's going to happen. Uh, it's a three-d visualization of the event, okay. uh, uncertainties, probability of collision, how close they're going to get. Um, yeah, so that's, it's a very analytical, uh, kind of problem. It's, it's pretty sophisticated to solve. Uh, yeah. but so AI doesn't necessarily add a lot of value in this case. There are other use cases of uh, AI that we are leveraging in other parts of our our, uh, our platform, but not for collision avoidance. It's it's a, it's a very it's it's a very it's a problem that can be easily solved through analytical uh, right. methods. Right, right, okay. Um, maybe following from that though, it it really sounds like there's still a lot of I guess human work to be done on the side of your clients, right? So they receive these notifications, they mm-hmm. they understand the data that you have sent them. It's like, okay, there is a collision that's going to happen, but then they still need to take the steps on their own end mm-hmm. to stop that collision from happening. Um, what is going to happen in the next five to ten years, fifteen years, something like that? Are your clients going to get a little bit more um, autonomous? Are you going to be communicating with their systems, with their uh, satellites directly that have the kind of navigational properties that are going to be built into them so that they can avoid things by themselves without having a kind of a team on the ground to solve that? Or is that still light years away? No, hopefully not light years away because we can't go, you know, you know, more than Precisely. a couple of years before Precisely. this is on, 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 uh, becomes uh, feasible. So we are building toward a full autonomy. Uh, a couple of things that are, you know, we, we always discuss is that trust is extremely important when it comes to you know, space missions because mm-hmm. you got to have trust in your systems, you got to have trust in the data. So as a result of that, satellite operator usually operators usually um, check with multiple data sources or multiple solutions, multiple sources, and also they want to review critical critical kind of maneuvers and and uh, and changes. But um, but as we but as we continue to build more integrations, uh, we believe that in the next you know two years or so, we'll be able to get to full autonomy in terms of collision avoidance when it comes to an operational satellite versus a non-operational uh, object. But why do I say that? So if you have two objects that are, one of them is maneuverable, that's, you know, let's say our, you know, our, the, 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 the 
kind of the, the satellite that we're controlling and also uh, debris, the mm-hmm. debris is not going to move. So you know pretty much exactly where it's going. Right. So we can decide, well, I want to avoid it. This is the maneuver I'm going to perform. But the problem is when you have multiple operational, so two operational satellites that are about to uh, have a conjunction. So what do you do then? What if they don't talk and yeah. they both perform the same maneuver or, you know, and it has, this has happened in the past. So as a result of that, one, one thing that happened in March was that SpaceX signed an agreement with NASA saying that anytime there is a, there's a conjunction between a, a Starlink satellite and a NASA asset, NASA is not going to move. So it's very clear. Mm, so mm. it's going to be on SpaceX to perform the maneuver. And and based on the information that is publicly available, um, Starlink satellites do have an autonomous satellite collision avoidance system, which basically, you know, they get data from the ground. And then mm-hmm. when there is a, a need for maneuver, they perform the maneuver. There's I, I don't have much detail about how it works. Yeah. But but as you can imagine, that won't work in cases where you have two operational satellites, Starlink versus OneWeb. Happened in April. The story is still, you know, developing and changing on that. Hmm. So um, we believe that in the next couple of years, we need to come up with, as citizens of the, uh, the Earth, we need to come up with rules of engagement when it comes to satellite collision avoidance, among other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so what if, uh, you know, a, a say um, a satellite from, uh, say, two countries that don't have great relationships on, on a collision? What, what are you going to do? So it is a problem. So we keep saying that technology alone is not going to be able to solve this problem. You need to have, you need to get policy involved. You need to have nations come together and come and, and come up with uh, norms of operating in space. Um, so yeah. So what we are doing on technology from a technology perspective, we are developing a platform um, that, when there are two operational satellites in a collision course and there are clients, they can actually uh, work together to come up with a maneuver plan that's optimized based on both sides, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, operation constraints. Okay. So, hey, satellite A from operator one, satellite B from operator two, you have a conjunction, have a, have a chat channel. Here's uh, Kehan's recommendation in terms of the most optimal maneuver. Uh, and so, so we believe that that is, that is something that we can do immediately. That's something that technology can do to help. Mm-hmm. But on the side, we talk, we speak with our representatives and people, you know, um, people close to Washington and try to increase the awareness around this problem. Because, you know, we believe that U.S. needs to take the leadership um, to to bring together a coalition of you know nations to to sit sit down and come up with rules of engagement when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, Earth. Great. I have two, uh, two quick questions to follow up from that. So one, and I should have asked this before, um, when there's a conjunction event, how, how much time in advance do these two items have before they actually collide? Are we talking hours, days, months? We, uh, what, what's the time frame there? Great question. So in a lot of cases where both objects are cataloged, which means we know where they are mm. and we have a good kind of history on them, uh, you can have days. Usually we get something, uh, usually three to seven days you get the first notification and mm-hmm. it changes over time. Sometimes it just disappears because we get better data that hey, no, they're not close or we get more accurate data showing that they're actually closer than what we thought. Three to seven days. But that's only between the objects that have been cataloged and we know them relatively yeah. well. So the problem with that is that if you have a breakup in orbit, so you know whether it's a you know just malfunction or 
whether it's a collision with debris or not object, and you have you know thousands of pieces of debris or, or tens, doesn't matter. It usually takes a while before ground radars and, and, and other tracking uh, technologies to detect and catalog those objects. Right. And, and, if, and if you have an object that was just cataloged, I mean, that, and, and then you could have a solution or it could have a conjunction that's hours away. But we don't see it. We don't see that much. Uh, hopefully we'll never see that because hopefully we won't have any, uh, you know, serious significant breakups in orbit. We've had a couple of them over the past two decades, but, but usually on, 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 um, well-defined or, or well-catalogued objects about three to seven days. Okay. Okay. Um, and then my, my other question here was more towards the kind of uh, standards and policies between, between nations that you were saying. It was quite interesting. Um, the, the one, the one point was the system that you're building almost seems to have kind of a, a logical decision, right? So irrespective of which country wants to do what, you're providing a solution that is uh, maybe the most efficient, uh, you know, requires the least amount of resources or fuel, et cetera. Um, are you hopeful that this kind of maybe scientific approach to making these decisions will win out you know, at the end of the day? Or are you getting a sense that because there are so many nations that don't necessarily agree um, within this space region, that there's going to be more political decisions made on how to maneuver the assets in the future uh, compared to, yeah, this this kind of autonomous uh, possibility that that's starting to be built out? It's a very difficult question to answer, and I don't I don't think I have the answer. Right? What mm-hmm, I can mm-hmm. say is that we're hoping that space will stay uh, you know, peaceful and countries will work together to address yeah. these issues. Um, but it's a very complex problem because even, you know, every country, U.S., uh, Russia, China, every country has assets that they don't publicly talk about. Even when you get the catalog information, you know, you realize that some items have been either removed or, mm. or the data have been manipulated. So you can't really get too much information about them. Um, um yeah, so I mean, there are a lot of complexities when it comes to national security and how the how different countries uh, can can work together. But we're hoping that um, you know lo- major players in in uh, in space programs, uh, nations come together and come up come to some sort of an agreement, peaceful agreement, and on on rules of the engagement. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I definitely share that that view. It would be it would be nice if people can come together, nations can come together, rather than you know, having this kind of confrontation outside of our planet. Anyways, um, uh, so I want I want to follow up. I, I do see the time is running down here a little bit. Um, the the podcast does focus on the on the main kind of mega trend of jobs and automation. You know, so we're talking a lot about automation in space. Of course, this is a completely, uh, not completely new, but it's an emerging sector, right? So there's constantly new jobs being created. You touched on kind of the um, uh, decentralization and the kind of democratization of the the assets that can be built, transferred, transported, and then sent out. So you don't actually necessarily need to have an organization, a corporate, to build out these things and, and send them out anymore. How do you see your system that you're building uh, with its uh, very impressive automation capabilities impacting jobs in, say, the next five to ten years? Yeah, no, great question. So our company, among you know, other, you know, a couple of companies just like us that we know of mm-hmm. that, that, that are they're that active in uh, in software, uh, in space software, we're creating jobs. So we have 
quadruple the size of our team in the next year or so. So mm-hmm. you have, you, you know, this, this, this sector, the space, you know, the software sector in space has been creating uh, a lot of high, you know, high paying jobs or, or high uh, skilled jobs. And, and in reality, the, um, the, the, the jobs that our, our solution is displacing is actually a kind of talent that we can leverage somewhere else to create a lot more value. Right. So if you have a highly educated, talented, uh, you know, aerospace engineer or, or astrodynamics engineer, they can be very, uh, they can create a lot of value focusing on other parts of the space industry than avoiding collisions. So, mm-hmm. um, we believe that this is a part, this is, this is one of those, um, you know, it's not like, it's not necessarily we are, uh, you know, replacing low skill jobs. It's not like this, tech, this, this, tech, this sector, this technology is, is replacing jobs that are needed. We are actually eliminating the, uh, the, the kind of task um, yeah. That is risky. Uh, it's being done in a, uh, in, in less efficient manner. Uh, and we're, we're releasing the talent or, or, uh, yeah, we're basically opening time, uh, with talent that is very, very usable and more productive somewhere else. That, yeah, that's great to hear. That's one of the, that's one of the trends that keeps coming up on the podcast as well. Um, for specific technologies, uh, or businesses, right? It's that you're not automating a complete job, but you're automating those tasks within that job. Exactly. Therefore, freeing up that labor to do something that's more, um, yeah, higher skill, uh, needed or, or, you know, you can use your brain a little bit more and contribute, as you said, uh, towards the sector or towards the business at a, at a higher capacity. That's great to hear. Um, one of the ways that I like to end all, all these podcast episodes is, I mean, we've talked a couple of times about like the future, the next five to 10 years. Um, if I could ask you what your future vision is of the space economy right? the new space economy uh, for let's, let's pick a, a relative time frame. Let's say 10 years out. Is it going to be a completely autonomous, uh, you know, interconnected system where satellites are talking to each other? They're talking to the radar. They're talking to systems such as yours. They're all maneuvering uh, between each other and, you know, creating great amounts of efficiencies and leading people to do the kind of work that they want to do, or is there going to be something else thrown into the mix? Kind of what's your, what's your vision for them maybe in the next 10 years? Yeah, obviously it's a very difficult question to answer and Mm. and the the, the odds that I'll be right is very, very low, but I'll try to ask it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So, um, well, I'm certainly, I'm hoping that in the next 10 years or so, uh, in 10 year mark, we'll have, all of the new missions that are launching are going to launch with orbital sustainability in mind, mm-hmm. meaning I'm launching a mission. I want to make sure that all the parts that are, are involved in that launch come, come down safely. Uh, and I want to make sure that when my satellite, when, when it gets to the end of life, it decommissions automatically and, and, and comes back. Um, so that is the hope. Um, that is one thing that I'm really hoping that will happen and I'm hopeful that it will happen. Um, so, but, but 10 year time frame is quite short for, you know, certain kind of missions that have launched or are, are launching today that are still, you know, leveraging kind of older rules and, and technologies. But, uh, but I, but I believe what's going to, what's going to happen is that you're going to have uh, a significant number of mega constellations that are very well automated, very well regulated, mm-hmm. and hopefully working together to keep each other and the orbital environment safe. But you're going to have obviously the debris and you're going to have the older kind of generation satellites. That you still have to uh, handle on, an, on a case to case to case to case, to case basis, um, but hopefully uh, we will use we will have um, autonomy built into the new mega constellation, which is going to be the biggest chunk of the um, new satellite launches in the next decade. 
Great. Um, well, Raz, thank you very much for coming on to the Automated Podcast, uh, especially thanks for that kind of future vision. It's always something that I that I like to hear from from the guests. Um, I'll have the website, uh, Kahan Space, as well as your LinkedIn up on the show notes. Is there a, another place that you want uh, listeners to check you out? Uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter. Uh, okay. It's, it's Kahan Space handle um, and follow us on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, our website is the best place to go. We 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 post um, our news and also uh, our thoughts on our blog uh, very frequently. Okay. Great. Uh, but yeah, follow us on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks you very much for coming on to the podcast, and uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your insights and uh, all the best with uh, with your business. It's very exciting, and I hope that the automation potential uh, really kind of helps out the new space uh, sector. Mark, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast and the conversations here, the best way to do this is to go onto Apple Podcasts and leave a review as it helps the algorithm to reach out to new listeners and brings the show to them. Also, feel free to check out the website, automatedpodcast.org, where you can find the show notes for each episode, written articles on the themes of the podcast, and a library of resources on the topic of emerging tech and automation. Also, if you want to reach out and leave any feedback or you have any questions about the podcast or any of the conversations, there are general contact links such as email, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. for you there on the website. And finally, for those of you that want more than just an audio conversation, the video recordings are now going to be up on YouTube for the newer conversations. So feel free to check out the videos by searching for Automated Podcast on YouTube, where, of course, you can like and subscribe if you prefer to support the podcast that way. The Automated Podcast.